Chapter Seventeen of the Promised Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter Seventeen. The Landlady. From sunrise to sunset, the day was long enough for many things besides school, which occupied five hours. There was time for me to try to earn my living, or at least the rent of our tenement. Rent was a standing trouble. We were always behind, and the landlady was very angry. So I was particularly ambitious to earn the rent. I had had one or two poems published since the celebrated eulogy of George Washington, but nobody had paid for my poems yet. I was coming to that, of course, but in the meantime I could not pay the rent with my writing. To be sure, my acquaintance with men of letters gave me an opening. A friend of mine introduced me to a slightly literary lady, who introduced me to the editor of the Boston Searchlight. Who offered me a generous commission for subscriptions to his paper? If our rent was three and one half dollars per week, payable on strong demand, and the annual subscription to the searchlight was one dollar, and my commission was fifty percent, how many subscribers did I need? How easy! Seven subscribers a week, one a day. Anybody could do that. Mr. James, the editor, said so. He said I could get two or three any afternoon between the end of school and supper. If I worked all Saturday, my head went dizzy computing the amount of my commissions. It would be rent and shoes and bonnets and everything for everybody. Bright and early one Saturday morning in the fall, I started out canvassing in my hand a neatly folded copy of the searchlight. In my heart, faith in my lucky star and good will towards all the world. I began with one of the great office buildings on Tremont Street, as Mr. James had advised. The first half hour I lost, wandering through the corridors, reading the names on the doors. There were so many people in the same office. How should I know when I entered which was Wilson and Reed, solicitors, and which C. Jenkins Smith, mortgages and bonds? I decided that it did not matter. I would call them all Sir. I selected a door and knocked. After waiting some time, I knocked a little louder. The building buzzed with noise. Swift footsteps echoed on the stone floors. Snappy talk broke out with the opening of every door. Bells tinkled, elevators hummed. No wonder they did not hear me knock. But I noticed that other people went in without knocking. So after a while, I did the same. There were several men and two women in the small, brightly lighted room. They were all busy. It was very confusing. Should I say, sir, to the roomful? Excuse me, sir. I began. That was a very good beginning. I felt sure, but I must speak louder. Lately, my voice had been poor in school, gave out sometimes in the middle of a recitation. I cleared my throat, but I did not repeat myself. The back of the bald head that I had addressed revolved and presented its compliment—a bald front. Will you? Would you like? I'd like. I stared in dismay at the bald gentleman, unable to recall a word of what I meant to say, and he stared in impatience at me. Well, well, he snapped. What is it? What is it? That reminded me. It's the Boston searchlight, sir. I take sub. Take it away. Take it away. We're busy here. He waved me away over his shoulder. The back of his head once more presented to me. I stole out of the room in great confusion. Was that the way I was going to be received? Why, Mr. James had said nobody would hesitate to subscribe. It was the best paper in Boston, the searchlight, and no business man could afford to be without it. I must have made some blunder. Was mortgages and bonds a business? I'd never heard of it, and very likely I had spoken to C. Jenkins Smith. I must try again. Of course, I must try again. I selected a real estate office next. A real estate broker I knew for certain was a business man. 
Mr. George A. Hooker must just be waiting for the Boston searchlight. Mr. Hooker was indeed waiting, and he was telling Central about it. Yes, Central. Waiting. Waiting. What? Yes, yes. Ring four. What's that? Since when? Why didn't you say so at first, then, instead of keeping me on the line? What? Oh, is that so? Well, never mind this time, Central. I see. I see. All right. I had become so absorbed in this monologue that when Mr. Hooker swung around on me in his revolving chair, I was startled, feeling that I had been caught eavesdropping. I thought he was going to rebuke me, but he only said, "'What can I do for you, miss?' Encouraged by his forbearance, I said, "'Would you like to subscribe to the Boston Searchlight, sir?' Sir was safer, after all. "'It's a dollar a year.' I was supposed to say that it was the best paper in Boston, etc., but Mr. Hooker did not look interested, though he was not cross. "'No, thank you, miss. No new papers for me. Excuse me, I am very busy.' And he began to dictate to a stenographer. Well, that was not so bad. Mr. Hooker was at least polite. I must try to make a better speech next time. I stuck to real estate now. O'Lair and Kennedy were both in, in my next office, and both apparently enjoying a minute of relaxation, tilted back in their chairs behind a low railing. Said I, determined to be businesslike at last, and addressing myself to the whole firm. Would you like to subscribe to the Boston Searchlight? It's a very good paper. No businessman can afford it, afford to be without it, I mean. It's only a dollar a year. Both men smiled at my break, and I smiled too. I wondered, would they subscribe separately, or would they take one copy for the firm? The Boston Searchlight, repeated one of the partners. Never heard of it. Is that the paper you have there? He unfolded the paper I gave him, looked it over, and handed it to his partner. Ever heard of the Searchlight, O'Lair? What do you think? Can we afford to be without it? I guess we'll make out somehow, replied Mr. O'Lair, handing me back my paper. But I'll buy this copy of you, miss, he added from second thoughts. And I'll go partner on the bargain, said Mr. Kennedy. But I objected. This is a sample, I said. I don't sell single papers. I take subscriptions for the year. It's one dollar. And no business man can afford it, you know, Mr. Kennedy winked as he said it, and we all smiled again. It would have been stupid not to see the joke. I'm sorry I can't sell my sample, I said, with my hand on the doorknob. That's all right, my dear, said Mr. Kennedy, with a gracious wave of the hand. And his partner called after me. Better luck next door. Well, I was getting on. The people grew friendlier all the time. But I skipped next door. It was mortgages and bonds. I tried insurance. The best paper in Boston, is it? remarked Mr. Thomas F. Dix, turning over my sample. And who told you that, young lady? Mr. James, was my prompt reply. Who is Mr. James? The editor. Oh, I see. And do you also think the searchlight the best paper in Boston? I don't know, sir. I like the Herald much better, and the transcript. At that, Mr. Dix laughed. That's right, he said. Business is business, but you tell the truth. One dollar, is it? Here you are. My name is on the door. Good day. I think I spent twenty minutes copying the name and room number from the door. I did not trust myself to read plain English. What if I made a mistake, and the searchlight went astray, and good Mr. Dix remained unilluminated? He had paid for the year. It would be dreadful to make a mistake. Emboldened by my one success, I went into the next office, without considering the kind of business announced on the door. I tried brokers, lawyers, contractors, and all, just as they came around the corridor, but I copied no more addresses. Most of the people were polite. Some men waved me away, like C. Jenkins Smith. Some looked impatient at first, 
but excused themselves politely in the end. Almost everybody said, "'We're busy here,' as if they suspected I wanted them to read a whole year's issue of the searchlight at once. At last one man told me he did not think it was a nice business for a girl, going through the offices like that. This took me aback. I had not thought anything about the nature of the business. I only wanted the money to pay the rent. I wandered through miles of stone corridors, unable to see why it was not a nice business, and yet reluctant to go on with it, with the doubt in my mind. Intent on my new problem, I walked into a messenger boy, and looking back to apologize to him, I collided softly with a cushion-shaped gentleman getting off an elevator. I was making up my mind to leave the building forever, when I saw an office door standing open. It was the first open door I had come across since morning. It was past noon now, and it was a sign to me to keep on. I must not give up so easily. Mr. Frederick A. Strong was alone in the office, surreptitiously picking his teeth. He had been to lunch. He heard me out good-naturedly. "'How much is your commission, if I may ask?' It was the first thing he had said. Fifty cents, sir.' "'Well, I'll tell you what I will do. I don't care to subscribe, but here's a quarter for you.' If I did not blush, it was because it is not my habit. But all of a sudden I choked. A lump jumped into my throat. Almost the tears were in my eyes. That man was right who said it was not nice to go through the offices. I was taken for a beggar. A stranger offered me money for nothing.' I could not say a word. I started to go out. But Mr. Strong jumped up and prevented me. "'Oh, don't go like that,' he cried. "'I didn't mean to offend you. Upon my word, I didn't. I beg your pardon. I didn't know. You see, won't you sit down a minute to rest? That's kind of you.' Mr. Strong was so genuinely repentant that I could not refuse him. Besides, I felt a little weak. I had been on my feet since morning, and had had no lunch. I sat down, and Mr. Strong talked. He showed me a picture of his wife and little girl, and said I must go and see them some time. Pretty soon I was chatting, too, and I told Mr. Strong about the Latin school. And, of course, he asked me if I was French, the way people always did when they wanted to say that I had a foreign accent. So we got started on Russia, and had such an interesting time that we both jumped up, surprised, when a fine young lady in a beautiful hat came in to take possession of the idle typewriter. Mr. Strong introduced me very formally, thanked me for an interesting hour, and shook hands with me at the door. I did not add his name to my short subscription list, but I counted it a greater triumph that I had made a friend. It would have been seeking an anticlimax to solicit any more in the building. I went out, into the roar of Tremont Street, and across the common, still green and leafy. I rested a while on a bench, debating where to go next. It was past two by the clock on Park Street Church. I had had a long day already, but it was too early to quit work, with only one half dollar of my own in my pocket. It was Saturday. In the evening the landlady would come. I must try a little longer. I went out along Columbus Avenue, a popular route for bicyclists at that time. The bicycle stores all along the way looked promising to me. The people did not look so busy as in the office building. They would at least be polite. They were not particularly rude, but they did not subscribe. Nobody wanted the searchlight. They had never heard of it. They made jokes about it. They did not want it at any price. I began to lose faith in the paper myself. I got tired of its name. I began to feel dizzy. I stopped going into the stores. I walked straight along, looking at nothing. I wanted to go back, go home, but I wouldn't. I felt like doing myself spite. I walked right along, straight as the avenue ran. I did not know where it would lead me. 
I did not care. Everything was horrid. I would go right on until night. I would get lost. I would fall in a faint on a strange doorstep, and be found dead in the morning and be pitied. Wouldn't that be interesting? The adventure might even end happily. I might faint at the door of a rich old man's house, who would take me in, and order his housekeeper to nurse me, just like in the storybooks. In my delirium, of course I would have a fever, I would talk about the landlady, and how I had tried to earn the rent, and the old gentleman would wipe his spectacles for pity. Then I would wake up, and ask plaintively, Where am I? And when I got strong, after a delightfully long convalescence, the old gentleman would take me to Dover Street, in a carriage, and we would all be reunited, and laugh and cry together. The old gentleman, of course, would engage my father as his steward on the spot, and we would all go to live in one of his houses, with a garden around it. I walked on and on, gleefully aware that I had not eaten since morning. Wasn't I beginning to feel shaky? Yes, I should certainly faint before long. But I didn't like the houses I passed. They did not look fit for my adventure. I must keep up till I reached a better neighborhood. Anybody who knows Boston knows how cheaply my adventure ended. Columbus Avenue leads out to Roxbury Crossing. When I saw that the houses were getting shabbier, instead of finer, my heart sank. When I came out on the noisy, thrice-commonplace streetcar center, my spirit collapsed utterly. I did not swoon. I woke up from my foolish, childish dream with a shock. I was disgusted with myself, and frightened besides. It was evening now, and I was faint and sick in good earnest, and I did not know where I was. I asked a starter at the transfer station the way to Dover Street, and he told me to get on a car that was just coming in. "'I'll walk,' I said, "'if you will please tell me the shortest way.' How could I spend five cents out of the little I had made? But the starter discouraged me. You can't walk it before midnight, the way you look, my girl. Better hop on that car before it goes. I could not resist the temptation. I rode home in the car, and felt like a thief when I paid the fare. Five cents gone to pay for my folly. I was grateful for a cold supper, thrice grateful to hear that Mrs. Hutch, the landlady, had been and gone, content with two dollars that my father had brought home. Mrs. Hutch seldom succeeded in collecting the full amount of the rents from her tenants. I suppose that made the bookkeeping complicated, which must have been wearing on her nerves, and hence her temper. We lived on Dover Street, in fear of her temper. Saturday had a distinct quality about it, derived from the imminence of Mrs. Hutch's visit. Of course I awoke on Saturday morning with a no-school feeling, but the grim thing that leaped to its feet and glowered down on me, while the rest of my consciousness was still yawning on its back, was the Mrs. Hutch's coming and there's no rent feeling. It is hard, if you are a young girl, full of life and inclined to be glad, to go to sleep in anxiety and awake in fear. It is apt to interfere with the circulation of the vital ether of happiness in the young, which is damaging to the complexion of the soul. It is bitter, when you are middle-aged and unsuccessful, to go to sleep in self-reproach and awake unexonerated. It is likely to cause fermentation in the sweetest nature, it is certain to breed gray hairs and a premature longing for death. It is pitiful, if you are the home-keeping mother of an impoverished family, to drop in your traces helpless at night, and awake unstrengthened in the early morning. The haunting consciousness of rooted poverty is an improper bedfellow for a woman who still bears. It has been known to induce physical and spiritual malformations in the babies she nurses. It did require strength to lift a burden of life in the gray morning on Dover Street especially on Saturday morning. Perhaps my mother's pack was the heaviest to lift, 
To the man of the house, poverty is a bulky dragon with gripping talons and a poisonous breath. But he bellows in the open, and it is possible to give him nightly battle, with the full swing of the angry arm that cuts to the enemy's vitals. To the housewife, want is an insidious myriapod creature that crawls in the dark, mates with its own offspring, breeds all the year round, persists like leprosy. The woman has an endless, inglorious struggle with the pest. Her triumphs are too petty for applause, her failures too mean for notice. Care to the man is a hound to be kept in leash and mastered. To the woman, care is a secret parasite that infects the blood. Mrs. Hutch, of course, was only one symptom of the disease of poverty, but there were times when she seemed to me the sharpest tooth of the gnawing canker. Surely as sorrow trails behind sin, Saturday evening brought Mrs. Hutch. The landlady did not trail. Her movements were anything but impassive. She climbed the stairs with determination, and landed at the top with emphasis. Her knock on the door was clear, sharp, unfaltering. It was impossible to pretend not to hear it. Her good evening announced business. Her manner of taking a chair suggested the throwing down of the gauntlet. Invariably she asked for my father, calling him Mr. Anton, and refusing to be corrected. Almost invariably he was not at home, was looking for work. Had he left her the rent? My mother's gentle, no ma'am, was a signal for the storm. I do not want to repeat what Mrs. Hutch said. It would be hard on her, and hard on me. She grew red in the face, her voice grew shriller with every word. My poor mother hung her head where she stood. The children stared from their corners. The frightened baby cried. The angry landlady rehearsed our sins like a prophet foretelling doom. We owed so many weeks' rent. We were too lazy to work. We never intended to pay. We lived on others. We deserved to be put out without warning. She reproached my mother for having too many children. She blamed us all for coming to America. She enumerated her losses through non-payment of her rents, told us that she did not collect the amount of her taxes, showed us how our irregularities were driving a poor widow to ruin. My mother did not attempt to excuse herself, but when Mrs. Hutch began to rail against my absent father, she tried to put in a word in his defense. The landlady grew all the shriller at that, and silenced my mother impatiently. Sometimes she addressed herself to me. I always stood by, if I was at home, to give my mother the moral support of my dumb sympathy. I understood that Mrs. Hutch had a special grudge against me, because I did not go to work as a cash girl and earn three dollars a week. I wanted to explain to her how I was preparing myself for a great career, and I was ready to promise her the payment of the arrears as soon as I began to get rich. But the landlady would not let me put in a word and I was sorry for her, because she seemed to be having such a bad time. At last Mrs. Hutch got up to leave, marching out as determinedly as she had marched in. At the door she turned, in undiminished wrath, to shoot her parting dart. And if Mr. Anton does not bring me the rent on Monday, I will serve notice of eviction on Tuesday, without fail. We breathed when she was gone. My mother wiped away a few tears, and went to the baby, crying in the windowless, airtight room. I was the first to speak. "'Isn't she queer, Mamma? I said. "'She never remembers how to say our name. "'She insists on saying Anton, Anton. "'Celia, say Anton.' "'And I made the baby laugh by imitating the landlady, "'who had made her cry. "'But when I went to my little room, "'I did not mock Mrs. Hutch. "'I thought about her, thought long and hard, and to a purpose. "'I decided that she must hear me out once. "'She must understand about my plans, "'my future, my good intentions.' 
It was too irrational to go on like this. We living in fear of her, she in distrust of us. If Mrs. Hutch would only trust me, and the tax collectors would trust her, we could all live happily forever. I was the more certain that my argument would prevail with the landlady, if only I could make her listen, because I understood her point of view. I even sympathized with her. What she said about the babies, for instance, was not all unreasonable to me. There was this last baby, my mother's sixth, born on Mrs. Hutch's premises. Yes, in the windowless, airtight bedroom. Was there any need of this baby? When May was born two years earlier on Wheeler Street, I had accepted her. After a while, I even welcomed her. She was born an American, and it was something to me to have one genuine American relative. I had to sit up with her the whole of her first night on earth, and I questioned her about the place she came from, and so we got acquainted. As my mother was so ill that my sister Frida, who was a nurse, and the doctor from the dispensary had all they could do to take care of her, the baby remained in my charge a good deal, and so I got used to her. But when Celia came, I was two years older, and my outlook was broader. I could see around a baby's charms and discern the disadvantages of possessing the baby. I was supplied with all kinds of relatives now. I had a brother in law and an American born nephew who might become a president. Moreover, I knew there was not enough to eat before the baby's advent, and she did not bring any supplies with her that I could see. The baby was one too many. There was no need of her. I resented her existence. I recorded my resentment in my journal. I was pleased with my broad mindedness that enabled me to see all sides of the baby question. I could regard even the rent question disinterestedly, like a philosopher reviewing natural phenomena. It seemed not unreasonable that Mrs. Hutch should have a craving for the rent as such. A schoolgirl dotes on her books, a baby cries for its rattle, and a landlady yearns for her rents. I could easily believe that it was doing Mrs. Hutch spiritual violence to withhold the rent from her. And hence the vehemence with which she pursued the arrears. Yes, I could analyze the landlady very nicely. I was certainly qualified to act as a peacemaker between her and my family. But I must go to her own house and not on a rent day. Saturday evening, when she was embittered by many disappointments, was no time to reproach her with diplomatic negotiations. I must go to her house on a day of good omen. And I went, as soon as my father could give me a week's rent to take along. I found Mrs. Hutch in the gloom of a long, faded parlor. Divested of the ample black coat and widow's bonnet in which I had always seen her, her presence would have been less formidable had I not been conscious that I was a mere rumpled sparrow fallen into the lion's den. When I had delivered the money, I should have begun my speech. But I did not know what came first of all there was to say. While I hesitated, Mrs. Hutch observed me. She noticed my books and asked about them. I thought this was my opening, and I showed her eagerly my Latin grammar, my geometry, my Virgil. I began to tell her how I was to go to college, to fit myself to write poetry and get rich and pay the arrears. But Mrs. Hutch cut me short at the mention of college. She broke out with her old reproaches, and worked herself into a worse fury than I had ever witnessed before. I was all alone in the tempest, and a very old lady was sitting on a sofa, drinking tea. And the tidy on the back of the sofa was sliding down. I was so bewildered by the suddenness of the onslaught, I felt so helpless to defend myself, that I could only stand and stare at Mrs. Hutch. She kept on railing without stopping for breath, repeating herself over and over. At last I ceased to hear what she said. I became hypnotized by the rapid motions of her mouth. Then the moving tidy caught my eye, and the spell was broken. 
I went over to the sofa with a decided step, and carefully replaced the tidy. It was now the landlady's turn to stare, and I stared back, surprised at my own action. The old lady also stared, her teacup suspended under her nose. The whole thing was so ridiculous. I had come on such a grand mission, ready to dictate the terms of a noble peace. I was met with anger and contumely. The dignity of the ambassador of peace rubbed off at a touch, like the golden dust from the butterfly's wing. I took my scolding like a meek child. And then, when she was in the middle of a trenchant phrase, her eye fixed dagger-like on mine, I calmly went to put the enemy's house in order. It was ridiculous, and I laughed. Immediately I was sorry. I wanted to apologize, but Mrs. Hutch didn't give me a chance. If she had been harsh before, she was terrific now. Did I come there to insult her? she wanted to know. Wasn't it enough that I and my family lived on her, that I must come to her on purpose to rile her with my talk about college? College, these beggars, and laugh in her face. What did you come for? Who sent you? Why do you stand there staring? Say something. College, these beggars, and do you think I'll keep you till you go to college? You, learning geometry. Did you ever figure out how much rent your father owes me? You were all too lazy. Don't say a word. Don't speak to me. Coming here to laugh in my face. I don't believe you can say one sensible word. Latin. And French. Oh, these beggars. You ought to go to work. If you know enough to do one sensible thing. College. Go home and tell your father never to send you again. Laughing in my face. And staring. Why don't you say something? How old are you? Mrs. Hutch actually stopped. And I jumped into the pause. I'm seventeen, I said quickly. And I feel like seventy. This was too much, even for me who had spoken. I had not meant to say the last. It broke out, like my wicked laugh. I was afraid, if I stayed any longer, Mrs. Hutch would have the apoplexy, and I felt that I was going to cry. I moved towards the door, but the landlady got in another speech before I had escaped. Seventeen, seventy, and looks like twelve. The child is silly, can't even tell her own age. No wonder, with her Latin and French and— I did cry when I got outside, and I didn't care if I was noticed. What was the use of anything? Everything I did was wrong. Everything I tried to do for Mrs. Hutch turned out bad. I tried to sell papers for the sake of the rent, and nobody wanted the searchlight, and I was told it was not a nice business. I wanted to take her into my confidence, and she wouldn't hear a word, but scolded and called me names. She was an unreasonable, ungrateful landlady. I wish she would put us out. Then we should be rid of her. But wasn't it funny about that tidy? What made me do that? I never meant to. Curious, the way we sometimes do things we don't want to at all. The old lady must be deaf. She didn't say anything all that time. Oh, I have a whole book of the Aeneid to review, and it's getting late. I must hurry home. It was impossible to remain despondent long. The landlady came only once a week, I reflected, as I walked home, and the rest of the time I was surrounded by friends. Everybody was good to me, at home, of course, and at school, and there was Miss Dillingham, and her friend who took me out in the country to see the autumn leaves, and her friend's friend who lent me books, and Mr. Hurd, who put my poems in the transcript, and gave me books almost every time I came, and a dozen others who did something good for me all the time, besides the several dozen who wrote me such nice letters. Friends, if I named one for every block I passed, I should not get through before I reached home. There was Mr. Strong, too, and he wanted me to meet his wife and little girl. And Mr. Pastor. I had almost forgotten Mr. Pastor. I arrived at the corner of Washington and Dover Streets on my way home, and looked into Mr. Pastor's showy drug store as I passed, and that reminded me of the history of my latest friendship. 
My cough had been pretty bad, kept me awake nights. My voice gave out frequently. The teachers had spoken to me several times, suggesting that I ought to see a doctor. Of course, the teachers did not know that I could not afford a doctor, but I could go to the free dispensary, and I did. They told me to come again, and again, and I lost precious hours sitting in the waiting room, watching for my turn. I was examined, thumped, studied, and sent out with prescriptions and innumerable directions. All that was said about food, fresh air, sunny rooms, etc., was of course impossible, but I would try the medicine. A bottle of medicine was a definite thing with a fixed price. You either could or could not afford it on a given day. Once you began with milk and eggs and such things, there was no end of it. You were always going around the corner for more, till the grocer said he could give no more credit. No, the medicine bottle was the only safe thing. I had taken several bottles, and was told that I was looking better, when I went one day to have my prescription renewed. It was just after a hard rain, and the pools on the broken pavements were full of blue sky. I was delighted with the beautiful reflections. There were even white clouds moving across the blue, there at my feet on the pavement. I walked with my head down all the way to the drug store, which was all right, but I should not have done it going back with the new bottle of medicine in my hand. In front of a cigar store, halfway between Washington Street and Harrison Avenue, stood a wooden Indian with a package of wooden cigars in his hand. My eyes on the shining rain pools, I walked plump into the Indian, and the bottle was knocked out of my hand and broke with a crash. I was horrified at the catastrophe. The medicine cost fifty cents. My mother had given me the last money in the house. I must not be without my medicine. The dispensary doctor was very emphatic about that. It would be dreadful to get sick and have to stay out of school. What was to be done? I made up my mind in less than five minutes. I went back to the drug store and asked for Mr. Pastor himself. He knew me. He often sold me postage stamps and joked about my large correspondence and heard a good deal about my friends. He came out on this occasion from his little office in the back of the store, and I told him of my accident, and that there was no more money at home, and asked him to give me another bottle, to be paid for as soon as possible. My father had a job as a night watchman in a store. I should be able to pay very soon. Certainly, my dear, certainly, said Mr. Pastor. Very glad to oblige you. It's doing you good, isn't it? That's right. You're such a studious young lady with all those books and so many letters to write. You need something to build you up. There you are. Oh, don't mention it, any time at all, and look out for wild Indians. Of course, we were great friends after that, and this is the way my troubles often ended on Dover Street. To bump into a wooden Indian was to bump into good luck a hundred times a week. No wonder I was happy most of the time. End of chapter 17